This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. We'd like to welcome you to our 100th episode of the podcast. We started out uh, back in episode one, really aspiring to identify what are the next goals of Jewish liberation after the successes of the Zionist movement. How can we create a new Jewish liberation ideological tendency or maybe a series of new Jewish liberation ideological tendencies uh, that aim to really correct Zionism's flaws while protecting its positive achievements and uh, leading the Jewish people forward, uh, advancing us in our struggle. And we've explored a lot of ground in the last hundred episodes and uh, had a lot of discussions that I think most of the Jewish world are not having, certainly the pro-Israel Jewish world, both in Israeli society and the diaspora. Um, and over the years, some of these ideas that we've formulated here have seeped their way into mainstream pro-Israel spaces and some have not. So in order to commemorate our official 100th episode, I've invited uh, three people to join me on the show. They've all been guests on the show, and uh, one of them is even hosted. And uh, just to really have a conversation of concerning what we've learned in the last couple of years through this project and others adjacent to it at the Vision Movement, and how we'd like to apply that now. So uh, I'd let you guys introduce yourselves. Who wants to go first? I'm Lizzie. I originally was born in Toronto, and I officially made Aliyah um, a couple years ago. And I got involved with Vision Movement because I was searching for a deeper understanding of what the Jewish people are actually doing with our return back to Israel. I grew up in the folds of, you know, B'nai Akiva, modern Orthodox understanding of our relationship to the land. But as I got older and I started hearing more anti-Israel narratives, it started to make me question some of the things that I had been taught. Um, but I knew deep inside that there was something really real being given over to me in terms of my relationship to the land of Israel. And I'd been looking for a new way to unpack that. And that's how I came to join the Vision Movement. All right, welcome Lizzie. I'm Shai, I live in Jerusalem. I came to the Vision Movement, I would say eight years ago. Uh, when I was doing my gap year program in Yeshiva Doraita, I, I came at a very unique time, a very uh, tumultuous time. Um, it was just after Tsuketan, and there was a, a big like shift in the discourse, I would say, and I was um, very lost into where I found myself in the Jewish uh, world and the Jewish political spectrums. I found a lot of truth in everything, but nothing to square all the circles, as it were, and so I really found the teachings and the uh, educational paradigm of vision to to really do that for me. Arya, I'm living in Psagot these days. I first got involved with the vision movement uh, when I was here on a semester abroad in Jerusalem. And I really think that as a student of history, in particular Middle Eastern history, I was really drawn in by the way that uh, the vision movement contextualizes a, our present historical moment, our present political realities in the much broader story of Am Yisrael and of the world as a whole in a way that doesn't just look backwards but also looks forwards to where history is going. That's very well said. So uh, Lizzie, Shai, and Aryeh aren't just frequent guests on the show. They also contribute quite a bit to the magazine, to visionmag.org, and also are very central in uh, organizing uh, a lot of our programs and activities in the Jerusalem area where we've built up quite a community, Baruch Hashem. So I guess the central premise of the show, we would call it the next stage, right, is that there needs to be a next stage. You know, Zionism was this kind of revolutionary movement that brought the Jewish people to a new situation, right? Like the situation of the Jewish people 150 years ago is nothing like what it is today as a result of the Zionist movement largely yet it appears I think you know from an objective historical perspective that the Zionist movement completed its goals completed its mission we're no longer in a Zionist era you know a lot of people in Israeli society when they use the term post-Zionist it has this connotation of being anti-Zionist 
or being non-Zionist and not wanting to involve oneself in Jewish liberation. But I think, at least for me, when I use the term post-Zionist, what I really just mean is we're living in a world that has already been changed by Zionism, certainly the Jewish world. Um, we're living in a historical context that exists largely as as a result of Zionism. And, um, and now we need to figure out what's next. I, I don't think Jewish liberation is over, but I do believe that Zionism is over only because I don't think Zionism as a very unique ideology that is a link in a very long chain of Jewish liberation movements. Uh, I think Zionism no longer has the uh, ideological force, the fuel to lead us forward, to, to get us to the next stage. So a lot of what we've been trying to do at this podcast is figure out what the next stage is. What is the next stage of Jewish history? What are the goals for this chapter of our people's story? And how do we get there either, I mean, arguably, perhaps we can get there through Zionism. You know, last episode had a Zionist in the show uh, to try and make that case, or through some post-Zionist Jewish liberation ideology that can really take us to the next stage. What do you guys think? I think for myself, you know, one of the reasons or the ways that I think is helpful to understand why we're living in a post-Zionist era is to really examine the conditions under which the Zionist movement was even born. And at the time, the idea of even having a state itself was revolutionary. There was no discussion for quite a while after like several failed attempts to return to our land, you know, there was kind of a lull in attempts to actually come back and reestablish a state. And so the Zionist movement really came into the world at the time and filled that void for the Jewish people and sparked that thing inside of us that, you know, says we want a state. But in terms of actually determining what that character of the state was going to be, what goals that state was going to accomplish on the global stage, you know, what's our foreign policy going to look like? What um, is our economic system going to look like? There were discussions, but the main goal of the Zionist paradigm was to just materially establish that state. And so all of the like different camps and different diversions within Zionism were existing under that broader goal of establishing a state. And now that we've had the state established, these other ideological differences are now appearing in full force and starting to really battle themselves out. And I personally don't feel that Zionism as the umbrella has the tools to actually solve those deeper conflicts that we're having about the character of the state that we've built here. Right, I like to understand the, the advancement beyond Zionism with a parable from a, the science world. There was a time in history where it was relevant to debate if you were a heliocentrist or a geocentrist. If the world was centered on the sun, if the universe was centered on the sun or on the earth. And both of those positions had serious ramifications for the way you did the rest of your meteorology and astrology and astronomy and your understanding of the world. But today, every scientist who's exploring space doesn't have to identify as a geocentrist or as a heliocentrist because everyone agrees and is already emerging from the accepted fact that our solar system centers on the sun. The question is, what do we do with that information? Now that that's a reality, now that that's a, a common, agreed-upon state of being, what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? How do we build on that knowledge and pursue something bigger? I think for so many people, Zionism hasn't even been defined so scientifically that way, and so it's going to be harder to convince everyone that Zionism has achieved its goals because you'd have to convince them that Zionism only had certain select goals. And so it's going to be a, a more of an uphill challenge, but I think I think ultimately we're, we're going to recognize that there's much more work to do and recognize that um, the Jewish people have a, a mission beyond just existing. I do think that, you know, there the original school of Zionism did have a particular ideology, um, you know, that we should be a state like all the other states or a nation like all the other nations and along certain lines. But then that evolved into a lot of different offshoots that I personally feel really kind of straight far from the original premise, which I view as a good thing because I'm not sure that I myself agreed with that original premise. But I do think it's helpful to for a lot of people who did shoot off from that original premise of Zionism to actually you know, unpack the conversation. Maybe it's worthwhile finding a new ideology that encompasses really what people want and desire from the state rather than taking an existing ideology that's not built or fit for certain aspirations and trying to mold that to what we're actually trying to do here. 
Do you want to explain a little more why you don't identify with that original goal of being a nation like all other nations? I believe that the Jewish people coming back to our homeland after nearly 2,000 years in exile is, you know, it's a break from the typical course of history. That's something revolutionary. And so as this like revolutionary act, us coming back, gathering Jews from the four corners of the earth and coming back to our land, I don't believe that we're meant to just be just another America or another England, right? I believe that our economic system, our political system, our, you know, social welfare, all of these things, uh, we have the ability to make real changes, speak on the global stage in a way where we're addressing injustice, where we are like correcting things that have been gotten wrong in other systems. And I think unless we're thinking along those those lines that we actually desire to do something different, we see these other systems and we see the flaws in them and we're actually trying to build something better. Um, you know, that's how we infuse our national life with a sense of, of difference than just, you know, being like everybody else. I think to be fair, uh, we should recognize that Zionism did have multiple ideological tendencies. I, I'm not sure I accept the premise that the original Zionism is Herzlian Zionism. Maybe we can say that the, the Chobevet Zion, like the Chibat Zion movement, there were kind of these like proto-Zionist movements without going into the Jewish liberation movements that tried to restore Jewish independence to Palestine in the many centuries leading up to the Zionist movement. But there were some, you know, just like sparks of Zionism before Herzl wrote his book and created the official World Zionist Congress. And I think for Herzl uh, and for a lot of his close collaborators, th there was a sense that the Jewish people in Europe were in danger. And I think that the Ikar, like the primary focus of a lot of the, what we call the Herzlian Zionists or the political Zionists was really mass rescue. It was really to save the Jewish people before there was some kind of catastrophe that struck us in Europe specifically. Cultural Zionism, by contrast, I think was very concerned with the type of society we had and what would make a Jewish society, whether it be a state or not a state, what would make a Jewish society unique. I think that figures like Eliezer ben Yudha revived the Hebrew language. I think today we very much take for granted the fact that this was like a revolutionary act, reviving a language that had been, for the most part, dead uh, for thousands of years, uh, with the exception of, you know, tefillah and Jewish ritual and study of our ancient texts. It wasn't the language that people were really speaking to each other in, for the most part. Uh, although we could say that certain languages were like bastardizations of Hebrew, like Yiddish, for example, or Ladino, etc. Um, and the idea of Jews being able to uh, defend ourselves physically, which is a, a very basic human characteristic, right? Like a human being is capable of defending itself. We weren't so sure about the Jews, right? Like humanity wasn't so sure about the Jews, especially in Europe. It seemed to be the um, agreed upon understanding of the Jewish people that we were physically inferior to our neighbors. And we saw ourselves that way as well. So I think one aspect of the Zionist revolution that should be appreciated is just the fact that we no longer, uh, at least Jews in the land of Israel, no longer relate to Gentile aggression the way we would relate to an earthquake or a hurricane, you know, which is essentially how I think Jews in, in Europe 200, 300, 400 years ago related to Gentile aggression. Uh, today we know that we could make the Nochri bleed, right? Like that if we have enemies, we can fight them. Uh, and that's also kind of revolutionary and you know it's almost embarrassing to say that that's revolutionary for us but it is so Zionism did all this and I think we should also recognize that Zionism a hundred years ago was really aspiring to social and political change in such a way that could really inspire young Jews today the young Jews out there who are looking for social and political change are not really finding an outlet for that in Zionism right the type of young Jew who gets involved in a Zionist organization or pro-Israel work, Hasbara work on campus, are not necessarily people who are trying to improve the world. They're people who are connected to their land, connected to their identity, connected to their people, and, you know, feel maybe under attack from all of our critics and, and all of the young people on campuses who are trying to make the world better, right? And therefore they need to like push back and that makes them incredibly reactionary. So I think just, um, not having a social or political transformation that we can envision and that we're trying to bring the world towards prevents us from being able to bring the next generation of revolutionary-minded Jews along with us 
and to give them a place in their own story and to create the space for them to be totally committed to making the world better for all peoples while deeply rooted in their own identity and their own people's story. I also think naturally it makes sense that, you know, if Zionism was a revolutionary ideology in the early 1900s, it wouldn't make sense that that would still be revolutionary now in like 2020s. We're dealing with completely different issues. Mm -hmm. The world has evolved. The topics of conversation, you know, in terms of how people treat minorities or how, you know, fair economic practices work, that level of conversation wasn't going on in the early 1900s. So while that was appropriate for that right. time. When we were a vulnerable minority, those conversations weren't really taking place. But now that we're not, those conversations are. And so in order for us to continue to, I guess, be relevant in this like global revolution of really addressing oppression and, and figuring out how to treat it, we too, as Jews, need to figure out a new framework for addressing that that's not just lifted from the last century. Hannah Arendt used to say that the day after the revolution, even the vanguard of the revolution will become reactionary. And I think that that is true of Zionism. Right, I think in every movement in history, by the sheer nature of human psychology and communal psychology, okay, that those who, who feel they've accomplished something, those who feel that they've, they've reached their goals, are going to, to want to defend those tooth and nail, not just from the, the original reactionaries who fought them and who, who they succeeded in, in overcoming, but also from the, the newer generation that wants to, to change or undermine or push forward the revolution uh, beyond what they saw as the, the ideal. Because I think ultimately when we're, we're coming from a place of political imagination or cultural imagination, people are going to be set in their their own constructions, their own perceptions of how the world should look. And either they're not going to succeed, or they're going to succeed and then have to struggle to keep that point in history alive, even past its prime. I think you're making a very good point. I think for a lot of people, when we're talking about like revolutionary ideas, it requires you to be comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable in terms of questioning the things that you take for granted that have been given to you over by your parents or by the society around you. It does require a person to actually really critically look at all of these things that have been given to them and ask better questions because at the end of the day, if we really, if progress is our goal, we need to constantly be reevaluating the things that we take for granted. And I think for the Jewish people, Zionism has become a really comfortable spot for us to be in. We've kind of achieved our goals, we've got our own thing going on, and it seems easier to just stay in this paradigm that we've created for ourselves. But I think if we're really going to, you know, take where we're at and bring it to the next level, it does require us to ask these really, really tough questions about you know, some of the conclusions that have come out of the Zionist movement and ask whether or not they're still relevant for this chapter in history. Look, one of the things we've explored on this show, and uh, we've had some guests on who definitely represent this in my mind, there is an attempt to apply, like, like there isn't what we call neo-Zionism. There's an attempt to apply Zionist ideas, Zionist theories, to the problems the Jewish people have today. Without the original economic justice element of Zionism. Meaning, originally, like, the young Zionists were very passionate about economic justice. Some were, the labor Zionists were. Right, exactly. but that was a very strong feature. And so in the neo-Zionist camp, that's actually missing from it, which I find interesting. Yeah, although there were, like, quote unquote, free market Zionists even 100 years ago, uh, like, Jabotinsky. The revisionist movement is... Yeah. Right. Although, to be fair, um, Jabotinsky in the revisionist movement had the five mems. I think it was uh, Mazon, Maon, Marpe... Food, housing, healthcare. Malbush. Clothes. Ve more. Education. And education. Right. The five mems that even Jabotinsky uh, believed the state of Israel would be required to provide to every citizen. So that's in, interesting. In, in the context of the Zionist movement, that is free market. Well, what I find interesting about the neo-Zionists is they seem to take old-school labor Zionist positions without mm -hmm. that element of the economic justice part and try to make that relevant for today's day and age, which is an interesting choice. For the most part, yeah. I think that this idea, look, we have to understand, I, I think, again, this comes down to like defining Zionism scientifically. What does it actually mean? Is Zionism, and I think for a lot of people out there, a lot of Jews who define themselves as Zionists, they're just like, we believe in Jewish liberation. Like, they see themselves as supporting or being participants in a Jewish liberation movement. They don't really differentiate between 
Herzl and uh, Menachem Begin and Yudah Maccabee and Rabbi Akiva. Like for them, it's all just like Zionism, right? Even though they would clearly see, I mean, they would clearly accept intellectually that Rabbi Akiva didn't call himself a Zionist and Yudah Maccabee didn't call himself a Zionist. But, but they're just looking at it as this like synonym for Jewish liberation. And I think when we define Zionism much more scientifically, we see it as a late 19th century Jewish liberation ideology that was definitely primarily concerned with the situation and the needs of the Jewish people in Europe and wanted to solve the problems of those Jews through a Jewish state, through the Hebrew language, through self-defense, the ability to defend ourselves physically, and maybe even some cultural revolutions, etc. But to take the ideas that were relevant to addressing those challenges and try to like superimpose them on today's challenges, um, for sure it's unscientific. And what I see happening in the neo-Zionist camp, aside from that, aside from just trying to take old Zionist ideas from a century ago and apply them to our current conditions and current situation, there's also this attempt to take um, ideas from other struggles, other people's struggles today. For example, there's this issue of like victim blame, right? That seems to be coming, you know, that, that might be a very like powerful current in like other people's struggles today. When you try to apply that to the Jewish people, you run into trouble because a lot of the way we've seen ourselves or understood our experiences for thousands of years is to ask ourselves, well, what did we do wrong? Right? Even when we talk about the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians and the Romans, we know that the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem, and we know that the Roman Empire destroyed Jerusalem, and we don't let them off the hook. But we also know the exact transgressions that we were guilty of that allowed those things to happen, and that kind of becomes central for us. That is what we center when we tell that story. You know, recently, um, Elisheva Chazan, asked me if I would teach a class on Megillat uh, Echa. Because apparently there's this book out on Echa that challenges Echa for victim blaming. And again, that's the, an example of taking ideas and currents that might be very powerful and very relevant to other people's struggles and applying them to the Jewish people in a way that's extremely sloppy. I actually think that that's really the overarching theme of what I guess our issue is with a lot of these different things is that we're trying to take somebody else's framework and apply it to ourselves. Whether we want to talk about the original Zionist ideology being born in Europe and looking at the European surroundings of, you know, their current existence. And European then, nationalism. Yeah, and trying to apply that to whatever nationalism they were trying to build in the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Or modern, what we call neo-Zionists, taking the like framework that other oppressed groups have designed for themselves and trying to apply that to the Jewish people. It's this running theme of the issue is that we're not actually looking within the context of our own culture for how we go about dealing with talking about our oppression, talking about how we're supposed to react when certain things happen to us, or talking about how we're supposed to form a state. It's looking to other cultures or other peoples for the inspiration on how we should handle our own issues that I think is actually leading us to a bad place because we really do have so much contained within our own culture that is well suited to address the issues in our culture. In trying to apply somebody else's framework, we actually cause more issues in our own society. And I think the current situation in Israel is a really good demonstration of, of how trying to import somebody else's understanding of our peoplehood is actually causing like political conflict and cultural conflict within our people because it's a foreign framework to us. It comes from this analysis that we are inferior to other people and, and their frameworks and, the, and their understanding of themselves and the world, which really was so integral in Zionism that um, that it has still it still takes place today in our politics, really. Yeah. Right. I think I'd like to challenge those who do see Zionism as a umbrella term for the last two thousand years of Jewish liberation movements to really familiarize themselves with the texts, not just of the last hundred years, but uh, to learn how Rabbi Yudha Levi and the Ramban, Nachmanides, how they saw Jewish liberation, how they saw the, the future and the, the goal of Jewish liberation and the creation of a Jewish state. If we're going to include them in the Zionist canon, then let's learn those texts and apply those 
to our current situation, just like we do Herzl and Jabotinsky. Mm -hmm. Or even to learn about, you know, the Vilna Gaon's efforts to encourage his students to move to Israel and like unpack what ideology was motivating those people that, you know, decided to come to Palestine. What ideology was motivating them? I think it's, you know, a little bit irresponsible to superimpose this Zionist ideology upon all the different groups that actually tried to make their way to Israel and establish a state here. And by unpacking those things, we will get a deeper understanding of what the actual goal of the Jews is in terms of us establishing the state here. There's also, I think, a, a right way and a wrong way to borrow from other cultures and other civilizations when trying to liberate ourselves or advance our own agenda. You know, we often bring up the fact that the Hebrews, when we left Egypt, we left with gold. And some of that gold went to create the Mishkan and some of that gold went to create the golden calf, meaning some of it was really conducive for us fulfilling our purpose and aspiring towards completing our mission. And some of it was really destructive. And I think that's a good metaphor for what we do with other people's isms or you know ideological tools or even methodological tools. So I think that there's a right way and wrong way that we need to filter. And, and that filtration mechanism might just be emunah. It might just be the ability. And this is something I think we're pretty good at doing at Vision is helping people look at the world through the ideological lens of our ancestors. Um, I think most people are unaware of the fact that they're looking at the world through an ideological lens, whether they know it or not. Um, I think most of the people we're engaging with today have been born and raised looking at the world through a lens of ideological liberalism to the point that they're not even aware that it is an ideological lens or that there are other lenses that they could theoretically engage with or, or try on. Um, so I think that once a person is looking at the world, at history, at politics, at social issues, through the ideological lens of our ancestors, of our prophets and sages, that actually allows a person to get a sense of what is positive and negative when borrowing from other peoples. And I think the, you know, just like Zionism really utilized European nationalism in order to kind of repurpose that and use it for Jewish liberation. I think there are new ideas that are in the world today that a lot of self-defined Zionists are afraid of, what they would usually refer to as wokeness, whether we're talking about uh, post-colonial theory or other areas of revolutionary theory, things that seem to be associated with our critics and our enemies in the minds of a lot of Israelis and pro-Israel diaspora Jews. I think these are things that were placed into the world for us to be able to take, you know, maybe shave their heads, grow out their nails, and redirect them towards helping us to reach the next stage of our liberation process. I think in the same way that Zionism utilized the tools of, we can even say, European colonialism to actually figure out how the Jewish people are going to return to our land and like materially build a state. It makes sense that when we're talking about the actual character of our land, we would look to the tools that are currently being, you know, popularized in the world and ask ourselves how those can be applied again through the lens of our own aspirations and our own framework. They didn't just, you know, they had discussed like, should we make a state in Uganda? And that was quickly shut down because obviously there's only one place for the Jewish people and that's Eretz Yisrael. So in that same vein where, you know, even Zionism using tools that weren't necessarily coming from us did manage to, for the most part, get us to like a more authentic place, a more authentic expression of ourselves, we have the ability to use new tools to accomplish that same goal, but always with staying true to ourselves and using, applying it to our own culture, not just taking it as it is and trying to fit ourselves into that box. Right, and I think one of the criteria that our sages uh, really harpen on to do those determinations is whether it has uh, real practical powers, whether it advances us, uh, whether it heals us from the, the sicknesses of our diaspora. And I think when we look scientifically at Zionism, its successes have been great, but we also have to be aware of there, there are certain things that Zionism in over 150 years of, of trying to solve Jewish problems hasn't succeeded. And I think that's exactly why it's so important to look in other places, to look to other parts of the world through the lens of our sages and our prophets to understand where we can fill in the, the holes of Zionism, where we can supplement the weak spots of Zionism 
to continue advancing our liberation. I think as much as that's a very scary prospect, and I think something that requires us to put ourselves in a very uncomfortable position, um, we can really say that every successful Jewish liberation movement required a similar paradigm shift in our minds. You know, even when we left Egypt, um, initially the spiritual leaders of Egyptian civilization were the firstborn of each family. And when we left Egypt, after the death of the firstborn of each Egyptian family, it was the Hebrew firstborn that were like the spiritual leaders. So the first thing we did was kind of do the Egyptian thing our way. That was like a stage in our liberation. But eventually we came to the point where the firstborn were replaced by the tribe of Levi. Meaning at a certain point we said, no, we have like a radically new idea that is unique to us. And that's gonna be a tribe of spiritual leaders as opposed to the firstborn of every family, which was what was common in the dominant civilization at the time. So just like Zionism was doing European nationalism, but a Jewish way, like a Jewish flavor of these different European style nationalisms, at a certain point, we have to say, well, maybe now's a good time to transition to something that's actually uniquely ours. Maybe there's a uniquely Jewish form of national consciousness, which is radically different from European nationalism. And maybe it's time to strengthen those forces in our society. I think a lot of people are, you know, there's disconnect when they try to hear these ideas because as a result of our colonization and the fact that we did exist in the context of somebody else's culture, whether you'd be Arab civilization or European or whatever it was, we really like developed this condition where we actually did believe that our own methods and our own worldview was inferior to the worldview of the societies around us. And so many of us are genuinely conditioned to be scared of asking those questions because it, it feels too extreme or it feels too, you know, we don't want to deviate from what the mainstream people are doing. But I think for Jews who are really, really passionate about Jewish peoplehood, that's the crux of the issue to actually ask yourself which context you've been existing in. Have you been existing in somebody else's context and unknowingly not realizing that you've been prioritizing somebody else's worldview over your own. And that's a really important step for a lot of people to take if we're discussing where we need to go for the Jewish people's future. So that's definitely one of the goals I think we as a movement have identified this need to decolonize Jewish identity, this need to apply post-colonial theory to the Jewish people, acknowledge that we are a deeply colonized people with several uh, traumatic layers of colonization, to understand what that means, not just as like a hashtag or a buzzword, but to really scientifically try to uh, unpack that and to apply post-colonial tools to healing ourselves and to helping us to decolonize. Uh, you know, it's like the difference between somebody who tries to say that Jewish people are indigenous to the land of Israel as like a pro-Israel talking point versus somebody who says, hey, we're indigenous here, we need to indigenize as a way to advance ourselves forward. So I think that like decolonizing Jewish identity is definitely a next stage of Jewish liberation that I don't think Zionism has the tools to accomplish. Uh, another is um, reconciliation with the Palestinians and acknowledging what Zionism did to them, how their lives were disrupted, how the, every, whatever civilization they had here uh, was disrupted by Zionism. And to not treat that like just, you know, anti-Jewish propaganda we need to defend ourselves from, but to actually look at what the Palestinians experienced as real, as true, as painful, as traumatic, as something that is still very much um, a part of their identity and reality today, uh, I, I don't think Zionism has the ability to even acknowledge that what Palestinians are saying about their own pain and trauma from the last century is true. I think that part of Zionist ideology, or certainly neo-Zionist ideology as it is expressed today, there's a need for the Zionists to be the good guys in like a G-rated movie. And anything that's so complicated and nuanced as to include aspects of what we did wrong and what we could have done differently or what we need to actually repair you know what damage we did that we need to repair today um, that is completely absent and i know this from just conversations with zionists it becomes very clear that there is a an incapability of actually confronting 
the things that the Zionist movement or the state of Israel have done wrong to Palestinians uh, over the last hundred or so years. And um, well, part of the danger is I think a lot of, especially today, Zionist ideology as it exists today is really shallow. It, it happens to be, you know, compared to other isms out there and the other ideological tendencies that really grab the youth like this is kind of shallow, kind of bourgeois, you know, you're going to an APAC uh, conference or a Hasbara dinner or whatever, or a stand with us. It, it's, it's not, there's nothing revolutionary, nothing radical about it, uh, nothing that's trying to challenge the status quo or change the world in any meaningful way. So what, what you end up with is a situation where if any of those people whose Jewish identity and understanding of history is very rooted in this like, shallow Zionist narrative, if they were to confront the Palestinian story in its reality, they would likely become anti-Israel. And that's also a danger. And, and that's, I think, one of the dangerous results of us not moving past Zionism in terms of our education, how we educate the next generation. I think instead of just like teaching them to be followers of Herzl or Jabotinsky or Achad Am or Ben Gurion or whoever, we need to really be inspiring them to be the next Herzl's and Jabotinsky's so that they're actually dealing with a real intellectual framework that's connected to our people's situation today and where we want to go and is not in danger of being destroyed the first time they realize that we're imperfect too and that our national movement has caused pain to others and harm to others, etc. And I think that's somewhat of the danger of having this line of, you know, Jews are indigenous to Israel as being just a, another pro-Israel talking point versus this really, really deep understanding of the relationship between us and the land is it's not just a small point that you can use to justify our presence in Israel. It's actually, you know, the framework for understanding what we're doing in Israel, why we belong in Israel, what our relationship to the land should be, what our relationship to the people surrounding that land should be. It's a much deeper system that we that already exists that we need to dive into. And so, you know, regardless of whether or not you believe Jews originate from here, if you can't understand the relationship that we actually have with the land in a really deep and meaningful way, and you're forced to confront this Palestinian narrative, it can start to undermine your, I guess, support for our presence being here, if that's just simply a talking point and not something that you feel and experience and understand very deeply. Whereas we have a responsibility to the land because of our indigeneity, you might say. Um, I would say that the, the Zionist movement really took Western responsibility to the land or Western relationship to the land, I should say. Um, and just threw the word indigenous on top of it, and you're never gonna seem indigenous to other people if you act that way. Right, because if the Zionist movement or Zionism itself is operating along, you know, Western lines of being, Western lines of thinking, for other indigenous people, they're able to recognize that very clearly as being foreign to their own culture. And, you know, as a result of us being subjugated by the West for so long, it's hard for us, the Jewish people, to come to those same conclusions. But if we don't, we do run the danger of when we say that we're indigenous being taken not seriously enough as we should be, because it doesn't seem to an outsider that we are indigenous because we're not behaving in a way that is consistent with indigeneity. Right, and it's not just that we're behaving or thinking Western or liberal. There's actually a problem with a colonial mindset built into Zionism. Like it is a feature of Zionism to have this colonial mindset especially in its attitude towards Palestinians, like meaning it almost completely mirrors the view you would often see expressed by colonial powers in regards to the colonized peoples that they see as like savage and violent and less civilized. And, and you hear that so often in Zionist spaces in regards to Palestinians with no sensitivity whatsoever to the fact that even that colonial mindset is part of our colonization. I would even argue also that you also see that in terms of how some Zionists relate to the actual land of Israel as like almost a commodity to be bargained with rather than just like an integral part of like every fiber of our being. That's one of the reasons I even... Soulmate. Right. That's one of the reasons I even got involved with the vision movement is I, I was so disillusioned with this idea, this question of like, how do we deal with this situation that we're in with the Palestinians, but also not sacrifice this very integral part of like who I feel I am, which is like the West Bank, Gaza, all of these parts of our land that we treat almost as like bargaining chips that for me feels completely off base to how I relate to it. Like I don't view, if we separate 
from any part of our land, that, that feels like an injustice against myself. And that is how an indigenous person does experience their relationship to the land. It's, it's not a commodity. It's very important. And so that's another area where I think it's very clear that Zionism hasn't necessarily gone deep enough into the Jewish people's relationship to the land to really speak to our indigeneity and our real relationship to it. And even those, like even right-wing Zionists in the United States and in Israel often will treat the land of Israel like a commodity, but it's just one that we're not willing to take for safety reasons or whatever it is, but it's still a commodity at the end of the day. Right, right that, that the Palestinians are too savage or too right. violent or too uncivilized to be trusted with the responsibility of statehood. Mm -hmm. But if they were, theoretically, we would give them half of our homeland. We wanted peace, as they say, right? Right, and so I think what's interesting about what we're doing, I mean, obviously I think this is something very powerful in what we're doing, is that we've created this political space that kind of includes what some might consider to be this ultra-nationalist Jewish identity and connection to our land and understanding of our relationship to our land with the ability to really see the flaws of Zionism and how it's negatively impacted Palestinians and to see it as our responsibility to achieve justice. And not just even in terms of Palestinians, but actually broadening that worldview and, and talking about injustice as a whole and wanting to unpack those conversations, not being so narrowly minded on how we discussed before about how the Jewish people had an issue with our safety in Europe and now we have a, a state and that's essentially a glorified bombs shelters for Jews and maybe Disneyland for American Jews when they want to come and visit, but actually trying to fill this state project with real meaning that can have global implications for people who are oppressed, whether we want to talk about you know, minority rights, environmental issues, there's a million different topics that we can cover, but that I do view as a very important part of Jewish nationhood is like acknowledging that you know this world isn't perfect and actually trying to make it better and our statehood project should include those discussions in it and it's it's not just about like this one narrow issue it's very broad right that's like the transition between like this narrow jewish nationalism or narrow european style jewish nationalism called zionism versus i think what we can be approaching now which is like hebrew universalism we've talked about that before on the show okay we've liberated ourselves and we do have material liberation for the most part but now we need to focus outward, think about what ramifications our national rebirth has for the rest of mankind. Yeah. And I think that's really the crossroads that we as a movement are standing at, is we've brought together a lot of people who, who see the world more from this nationalist Jewish lens, with people sitting in the same room discussing uh, these ideas with people who see the world and the, the struggles of the world from a much more uh, what's considered leftist, much more uh, revolutionary, uh, universalist lens. And I think this movement is really one of the only places in the world where those two sides, those two poles are coming together to work to imagine, to create these ideas, these solutions to how we as a nation, as a proud Jewish nation, deeply grounded in our prophets and in our sages can present these new solutions to the world's problems in a way that no other country, no other ideology, no other government can. I think that's really that Jewish idea of tikkun olam, but not just as a project of individual Jews, you know, trying to make a small difference here or a small difference there, but actually the Jewish nation in our land really speaking to the rest of the world and addressing these giant, huge systemic issues that have been plaguing humanity for a very long time and actually offering solutions for that. And I, that's very deeply ingrained in our culture and as a result of different cultural influences that this idea of tikkun olam has kind of been changed and warped to mean different things. But when you really stop to think about it, I think it does speak very deeply to this project that we're doing here in our homeland. And those two ideas need to be fused together very, very strongly. And I think being at this point of history and at this point where we're looking back and introspecting on Zionism's flaws and where we could be better is actually really empowering. And I really hope that listeners who don't know more about the vision movement get more involved and read what we're doing so that they can play their role in that story. 
Right. I mean, one of the things that are so special about this movement is everybody brings something different to the table. Each individual, you know, speaking about the Jewish people as a broader whole, everyone has something that they lean towards, an issue with the world. But there is a way to marry whatever individual desire you have with the collective desire of the Jewish people, which is to make the world a better place and to bring individuals to like consciousness of this for me has felt very empowering because I, I tend to be the kind of person who I desire to change the world and to know that not only am I doing that individually, but my people are working on this as a collective goal has been a complete shift in my life since I've, I've found a way to put that into words. So we're basically talking about this union of what in Israeli society might be perceived on a very superficial level as far right ideology especially when it comes to Jewish identity and our connection to the land, with what would be called in the West, far left politics. And uh, I'm not gonna say we're the only movement in history to combine these two poles, but I would say that right now, we're probably the only voice that's really creating this space. Right, even that paradigm is very hard to wrap a person's head around, and this is you know, where we can go back into how different cultures influence our own understanding of ourselves. Even deeming these positions as far right or far left is actually foreign to our culture. And we talk about this a lot on, on this channel and in our magazine about we have different tribal expressions, different types of Jews who lean towards different desires on how they're going to contribute to the Jewish people. And it doesn't exist on this linear spectrum. Um, trying to apply that framework often leads to a lot of confusion because you know you hear ideas and some of them sound super right and some of them sound super left it's actually all just jewish just mm -hmm. jewish that's really what it is that's the crux of it all right for us internally but when we're borrowing outside tools like we can say look marx and engels really understood capitalism and how it works and how it functions all the way down to the level of production you know lenin really understood how imperialism works as a stage of capitalism Fanon, these are real valuable tools that not only help us achieve the narrow nationalist goals of Jewish liberation, but can even open our eyes to the way systems of oppression operate in the world and help us to better fulfill our role as liberators of the rest of humanity, now that we have some power. Right, and ultimately, we don't need to come to the same conclusions as these thinkers. Adopting or using the analytical tools of Marx and Lenin and Fanon, that doesn't necessarily mean we're coming to the same conclusions of, of gulags and uh, fake trials, but... I don't know if those are their conclusions, to be fair. But being able to, to understand the world around us uh -huh. through those lenses, through those analytical frameworks, and then, once we're aware of what's going on around us, apply, again, the vision of our prophets for how the world should look, and then we can really start the work of how to get from point A, where we are, to point B, where the prophets guide us to, to dream towards. Uh, and right now, we're, we're in this space, especially within the Zionist world, where we're both ignoring the realities of the world around us and not looking forward to where we want to be. Right. I think, you know, one of the main things that left me feeling... I want to say almost hopeless a little bit before I came to this movement was I didn't really feel like any anyone was talking about the vision of where we're going in the future. It seemed like we're regurgitating the same issues over and over again. Like we have this problem with Palestinians, we have this problem with what the Jewish identity of the land is going to be, but nobody seems to have any new ideas on how we're actually going to address these challenges. It was all regurgitated stagnant ideas that clearly have not gotten us anywhere because we're 75 years into statehood and we're still dealing with a lot of the same issues that we were dealing with at the time of establishment. And so it, it makes sense just in a natural progression of things that in order to solve these challenges once and for all, we're going to need a new set of tools to actually address what's in front of us. Right. And the big one, for example, just to, to make it practical, you know, understanding how imperialism works helps us to better understand the nature of Israel's relationship with the United States and the need for Israel to become more independent. And I say that if a, if a Jew who's committed to Jewish liberation, whether he calls himself a Zionist or not, doesn't understand how imperialism works or how neo-imperialism works in the modern age, then he might look at the U.S.-Israel relationship as a great relationship, you know, something to be promoted on campus or on social media 
and, uh, and celebrated and strengthened. But if somebody really does have these analytical tools and understands how imperialism and neo-imperialism operate, then it becomes a lot easier to say, hey, wait a minute, there's something unhealthy going on here that's not good for us. We need to break free from this. And, and that, you know, for my opinion personally, that definitely puts independence from the United States on the list of Jewish liberation objectives in the post-Zionist era. I can vouch for that. I definitely used to view the relationship between Israel and the United States as mostly a good thing until I really started unpacking, you know, what that relationship entails, what the United States demands of us uh, in order to be in this relationship with them and what they're getting from it versus how it's affecting us. And once you really start to look at that critically, a lot of conclusions that have been fed to you, especially for people who grow up in the West, as this being like something you automatically accept as good, start to look a little bit more questionable as you go along with learning a lot of new information. And you didn't even grow up in the United States, meaning like Jews growing up in the United States who support Israel might have more of a psychological need to see the two nations as being on the same team. You grew up in Canada, so in theory, one would assume you were more free to envision an Israel independent from the United States, and it wouldn't be like a threat to your identity or how you're conditioned to see the world. I would definitely agree with that. I think growing up in Canada gives you some measure of distance from this, we could say, like very codependent, unhealthy relationship that Israel has with the United States and gives you enough distance to actually look at that critically and ask yourself, you know, who's really benefiting from this and come to the conclusion that it's definitely not Israel that's benefiting from this relationship. And then start shifting your mindset to think about how Israel can create better relationships, but being in the driver's seat, meaning deciding the terms of our own alliances with other countries that's coming from a place where we're actually getting something out of it, not just being exploited. As someone who grew up with the same distance from Canada, um, I definitely think many American Jews think that their legitimacy in supporting Israel is rooted in American interests and that they walk lockstep all the time. And I think that a lot of our ideas are very scary to that crowd. Um, but I would, again, caution and say that we could envision a relationship with the United States, but not an exploitative one. We can't be exploited in order to wave your flags together with ours. Whether that's economic exploitation or like overreaching cultural influence that's coming from the United States, trying to dictate the character of the state of Israel, which again, with all Especially these- Especially now. Yeah, with this judicial reform issue that you can see how unhealthy and toxic this relationship with the United States is that, you know, there's been so much criticism involved in this judicial reform which seemingly on the surface, people are trying to make this about democracy. But if you really like analyze this critically, many democracies function in a similar way that Israel's trying to reform its judiciary and no one says anything about that. But what it would allow for Israel to do is really be in charge of our own cultural character much more than we are now. And that's really, you know, what's trying to be dictated right now coming from an outside influence and that's unhealthy. We want to be able to have those conversations within ourselves and determine what our future is going to be by ourselves, not with somebody else sitting on top of us, dictating to us who we have to be. And potentially the most ironic thing is that this is all done in the name of democracy and human rights. Um, and the reality is that our our expression of, their, of diversity and identity is really much less rigid than that of the American idea of what, it, what constitutes democracy and what constitutes identity. Right, one of my favorite things that I have, I've heard here in the vision space is this analogy of like United States is like a melting pot, which kind of requires you to boil down your identity to a certain point where it can fit into the American conception of who you should be. But what Israeli society really strives to be is more of a chopped salad, where you can really still see the distinct individual flavors of, of each you know, group, but yet it comes together in harmony to make like a beautiful dish. And that's a very clear area where you can see a difference in how we desire to be as a society, us versus the United States. Just in terms of democracy, you know, I, I think it's very clear uh, to anyone who looks seriously at the numbers, Israel's sociocultural trajectory is towards those who want radical judicial reform, who want to disempower uh, Israel's judiciary in favor of empowering the people's representatives. Our listeners probably are well aware that uh, currently the Supreme Court in Israel represents a tiny sliver of Israel's population that happens to be the most westernized and most economically and socially powerful sector of Israeli society. Not just economically and socially, actually. They, for the most part, you know, control the military. 
and they control the courts and they control academia and they control the media and probably a few other institutions that I'm not thinking of at the moment. Uh, and, uh, you know, what's been interesting about this struggle is that you have both sides of it really seeing themselves as punching up in the name of democracy. But I think it's clear to any like objective observer that those who are really punching up and those who are really fighting for democratic power are those who want the judicial reforms, despite the fact that their representatives happen to be in power and have formed the coalition right now. But again, like uh, we have to define these things better. Like in Israeli society, we have to define what democracy means, and it can't just be a synonym for westernization. Because as long as it's a synonym for westernization, you can have the undemocratic rule of a tiny group of elites in the name of democracy. I think that was very clear, you know, living in Jerusalem and seeing both sides of those protests. You know, one side, it was very clear, like the message was just democracy and it didn't get much deeper than that. They didn't actually dive into what was going to become undemocratic about these reforms. But on the other side, the people who were really pushing for these reforms were literally saying like, we want to stop being second class citizens. We want our voices to actually be heard. Meanwhile, the other side, their voices have been heard and their voices will continue to be heard. But it's that group of people who their voices have really been suppressed and are not getting an opportunity to be represented. That's the side that's considered undesirable by Western forces that desire to dictate the character of the state to the rest of the population. And clearly, the U.S. has expressed its preference for the Supreme Court and the westernized elites to remain in power because it's also a way for America, the United States, to retain control over Israel and its policies. Yeah, I think, interestingly though, at the same time, until the current government and the parts of the population that it represents can themselves evolve, can themselves step out of this narrow conception of nationalism that we talk to and also reach a point where they can encompass, where they can speak to the values of this other half of Israel uh, until they they learn how to speak authentically as Hebrews, as Israelis in the messages of our sages and our prophets to those issues, to those questions. Uh, we're going to continue seeing these mass protests in the street out of fear that our narrow nationalism is going to mimic the narrow nationalisms of the West. And that, again, brings us back to the issue with Zionism, when all of our leaders and all of our politicians are operating in this really narrow framework that actually doesn't give people the ability to have the proper discussions that we need to have. It leads to these giant political, I guess, clashes, we can call them, that aren't getting us anywhere. We're just kind of having like the temperature of the public being raised over and over again without any actual like light at the end of the tunnel here and i do think that acknowledging that it's the framework that we're operating under that's actually causing a lot of these issues is a way to empower us to have change in the future yeah so in wrapping up i'm just curious to hear what you guys think you know how you guys would define the goals of jewish liberation right now like what uh, what objectives do you guys see as crucial uh, in terms of transitioning into kind of more of a post-Zionist Jewish liberation phase uh, of our people's story, one that might be a little bit less narrow in its nationalist outlook and, and more universal, maybe makes more space for the other or more of an emphasis on what our contribution is to the rest of humanity, not just our own personal security or national security. Uh, any thoughts? I think asking the question itself is a step in that direction because I think most people are operating under the assumption that there is no trajectory, there is no uh, ultimate mission for the Jewish people. Um, and so just laying out the framework and potentially decolonization leads to that, potentially breaking free from the United States leads to that, potentially reconciliation with Palestinians leads to that. Um, but just to lay out this idea that we have a mission, that we have prophets that tell us what we should aspire to. And I think one of the, the greatest acts of self-liberation that we can do as a people is really learn who we are, learn our our texts, learn our history, learn our story, the way we've seen it and understood it for the last millennia. And through that lens, by changing that ideological paradigm and freeing ourselves from the, the paradigm of liberalism of the West, I think that will open up our minds to be able to address 
all of the much more practical issues that, that are facing us. I completely agree with what Shine Arie just said. I think this process can be very uncomfortable for people who really did grow up in this Western mindset, like we're born there and that is all they know. And even for Israelis who don't even realize how much the West colors their view of the world, to just become conscious of the fact that something is going to color your worldview and you have the choice what you're going to choose to prioritize in terms of that, to recognize that our tradition encompasses such a rich worldview that has so much to offer the current challenges that we're facing right now, I, I think is the number one next step that we can take. As far as practical steps, I think we talked a lot about getting free from the US and I don't think that can be understated. As far as its importance, I think its implications also for so many other issues. And I think as individuals and in a, as a movement, we can really need to step up in exploring how we can practically uh, advance that goal. Yeah. Ammunition manufacturing. Yeah, I, I think that's something that uh, is scary to a lot of people, but uh, the more we discuss it openly, I think the more mainstream it can become. I think that's something that, you know, especially now with the U.S. waning in power, you know, the, the U.S. today is really an empire in decline. And uh, it's even according to those who've seen it as being in our interest to like hitch our ride to American empire until now, even if they would use those words. Uh, I think when you look at the global developments taking place and you look at uh, the direction the United States seems to be headed in, I, I think a, a very strong argument could be made, you know, just from a self-serving, narrow Zionist perspective, that it's probably in our interest to break free as soon as possible and to uh, explore other options. One thing that I think needs to be stated over and over and over again, though, is that Israel should desire a relationship with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors of the world. And I think that is part of the uh, part of the way in which this relationship has affected Israel is that it's kind of conditioned us to see ourselves or reinforce the conditioning that maybe we had from exile uh, as needing to connect ourselves to a powerful Gentile to survive, even if, or maybe especially if, that Gentile is in the business of oppressing others. And I think that Israel came back to life to really be a force for progress and to really side with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors. And now the nation has an opportunity to do that. Uh, and I think that we should uh, definitely be speaking more and more about this, both on like the moral level and also on the pragmatic, what's next, you know, what's in Israel's national interest level. I think the last thing I would bring to the listeners' attention is, you know, when Zionism first emerged as an ideology, most of the Jewish world felt very threatened by it. It wasn't widely accepted. It felt very scary. Now, you know, 100 or so years later, it's almost a given. And so when we're sitting here talking about these new ideas, while they might sound scary at first, especially for young people, it really is important to engage with them because what seems scary nowadays might become very clearly the obvious conclusions in another 50, 100 years. And so just to remain open to these conclusions, I think is, is very important. And by then we might already have new conclusions within our movement that make us scary. Yeah. Because that seems to be the, that seems to be the trend. You know, we, we say things that people aren't yet ready to hear. And then by the time they are and those ideas become mainstream, we're onto something else. And that's important. It's important that's to progress. know that about ourselves, that we seem to be, Baruch Hashem, I think we can be very proud of the fact that we're very much in the vanguard of where the Jewish people are at in this chapter of our people's story. And uh, that's good, I meaning that's good to know about ourselves and, and something to be proud of on the one hand, uh, especially when you see a lot of ideas that we produce and are not accepted at first, eventually becoming so mainstream and, and uh, so popular in Jewish spaces. But you know, one thing that uh, Dr. Yisrael Eldad, the ideological leader of the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, the, the Stern Group said, you know, the problem with being a bridge to the future is that the people walk on you. Uh, so we have to also be sensitive to the fact that it's not easy to be the movement that's constantly putting forward the new ideas that Israel Hashem will be driving our people's future, but uh, often in the present, they're hard to understand. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for joining me on this special 100th episode of the Next Stage podcast. 
Uh, if listeners are interested in checking out the show notes, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 100.